You know, as we've been dealing with this, this book of James, and we're talking about it in, within the context of where they're living, in a time when they're being uh, attacked from the Jews on one side, the Romans on another, life has gotten hard, people are having to leave town to protect their families. Uh, we know from church history that James eventually is beheaded because of his faith and faithfulness and standing in, in Jerusalem. And then you come to chapter 2, and, and he starts out dealing with preferential treatment. And I looked at that passage uh, about a week in, in advance like I normally do, and I looked at it and I said, why in the world is this passage here? It just seems out of place to me on first glance. You're going, why is he talking about preferential treatment, partiality, showing preference, all of a sudden. It's, it, but i got to tell you, it's not all of a sudden. One scholar has likened the book of James uh, to the New Testament version of Proverbs. You've, you've read in Proverbs, you're reading Proverbs and you're reading about one thing and then all of a sudden you're on another topic and then you're on another topic. It's like they have attention deficit or something as they're writing. You know what I'm saying? They're bounce, 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 bounce. And you really got to keep up because you know, sometimes there's a thought here and then you got to come down here and the thought, the rest of the thought's down here and it's over here. James kind of, kind of does that in some respects. Uh, and in, but it, so in some ways what he's doing in this passage today is going to carry concepts from the previous section and play them out a little bit further. And he addresses an issue that is not, was not unique to the first century church. It's the way we treat each other within the body of Christ. Kind of a big, heavy topic, maybe. But let me remind you, Church at Jerusalem was made up of people who were primarily raised in Judaism. What's that mean? Well, they primarily grew up in a culture that was very ritual, very rules-oriented, very law-oriented. You know, the, the, the rules, the regulations, this and this and this. You do this. You walk this many steps. You wear this. You don't wear this. You do that. You don't do this. Th- that's their life. And, and many of the people who converted and accepted Jesus as Messiah were from the region around uh the Judean area, so they were locals. However, many of them had immigrated uh, back to the homeland of Jewish faith and were there when Messiah was revealed. And so you've got a, a melting pot of folks. You've got rich folks, you've got poor folks, you've got uh, older folks, you've got younger folks. It sounds like a church to me, doesn't it? It's a group of people coming together. And they say, come back together, they find themselves with faith in Jesus. Yay, good thing. But they also find themselves in conflict with a culture that has gone crazy. Sound familiar? That's the world we live in in a lot of ways, and that's one of the reasons we've entitled the series Victorious Living in Vile Times. But as serious hardship and trials arise and direct result to their faith in Christ, they find themselves in a tough spot, and they want to circle the wagons. They didn't have wagons. You know, it's a metaphor that doesn't fit the culture, obviously, but it's the idea that they wanted to come together and let's just be together. And, and as you get together, sometimes you begin to rub each other the wrong way sometimes and you have conflict. And that's what's going on within this group. So they've got conflict on the left side and they've got conflict on the right side, as I described a couple of weeks ago. And they're on an island in a river that's just raging crazy. And now they're having conflict on the island. And James writes these words. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and becomes judge, become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God co- chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they, are not, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are, were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he said, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are, ju- are to be judged under the law of liberty, for, the, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, I pray that as we look at your text this morning, this text, you'd show us how important it is, Father, to learn to treat one another in ways that are honorable. To not hold places of partiality towards some and, and, and denigrate others, but we've got to, to find that level ground at the cross. That we walk together, we love together, we minister together, we care together, we cry together, and we even rejoice together. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see your truth, Father, beyond what this preacher is trying to share in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a couple of things I want you to see. First of all, the outline looks long, but that usually means I go fast, so we'll be okay on time. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Showing preference dishonors God. Now, within the context of severe persecution, there seems to be a, a, we'll call it a compounding issue that they're dealing with in the church. They are struggling with the Jews who are attacking them spiritually in a sense. They're dealing with the Romans who look at them and think they've lost their minds worshiping this dead guy Jesus who they crucified on a cross. They don't understand him. And they're dealing with this idea of partiality or showing preference as if severe persecution from the Jews and the Romans was not enough. They also have intention within the church, within the body of Christ. In many cultures, it's not only acceptable but expected even to treat some with deference and put them up, they're more important, and we're not as important. And James is going, whoa, whoa, not so. He tells them that the beloved, there's no place for partiality, no place for showing preference among that. Now, please understand, James is not some utopian social engineer trying to engineer this on-earth utopia for everybody. We're all the same. We're all the same. That's not what he's trying to do. What he sees is this. There's an issue here. That ultimately, if we allow it to go on, dishonors God. You're going, how so? See, if one's lifted up, others are naturally going to be what? Not lifted up. Another word that might be used to denigrate will put them down. As one is exalted, others are what? Deflated. And yet at the foot of the cross, how is the ground? It's supposed to be level, right? We're supposed to be on the same place. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level indeed. And when we elevate one, we invariably will do what? We'll have to denigrate somebody else. And James is saying this ought not to be. We don't want to be that way. There's a caution here that if we do that, if we don't do what God's calling us to do, to to level the ground, if you will, we're going to dishonor the unique creation of God. In the other person. We dishonor the Lord. Second, that showing preference will then diminish others. 
Yes, they're all D's today, so you can write the first letter and you'll be all right. Diminish others. If a man's wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. In a Baptist church, that would be the back row, right? I don't you guys sitting up front. I'm worried about y'all, you know. And while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? James cautions them about dishonoring God by elevating anyone above the others. Then he gives the example. So he's given the principle. Now he gives an example of what it means to diminish others. He's using an illustration I think that any one of us can understand, right? We are in a place to gather together. We're in a, a place where the believers of Jesus have come together. They're going to worship. Now, don't think walking into the building at First and Main, okay, in Jerusalem. There wasn't a red brick building called the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. They didn't have a building. So they would gather more organically. Often they would meet in the temple courts under the colonnades around the sides in smaller groups or larger groups together. And so you can imagine them coming together. I think the people to whom he writes are going, yeah, I can, I can see this. And James, James speaks to what may have actually been something that actually happened. I see, remember, James is in Jerusalem, and I think he's the pastor of that church. He may have been dealing with an issue that they had happened in their body of Christ in that place. And so it's not difficult for us to imagine this, but James bluntly calls out this action in a way that says, you do this, you're diminishing the others. You're messing up. Because if we allow those distinctions to be made among ourselves, we make others to be judge and jury. So when I look at a person who walks up to the front door of our church, we have a building. It's invariable, what, that we will do a judgment I walked in this morning, and our guest music leader is wearing a suit and a tie. I said, he looks good. And I look down and I go, oh, well. But you begin to make a judgment based on clothing, don't we? We look at the way they, they dress, the way they carry themselves, the words they use. If you're standing at the right place, you see what car they drove up in. And you go, oh, Yeah. The, the, the thing when we do that is we are not honoring individuals. We're not lifting each other. In the process, we treat some as less than and some as greater than and not worthy as. And we elevate some. We denigrate others. We diminish the worth of those around us and we mess things up. And then third, he says, look at this. He degrade, It degrades everybody in the end. Listen, my beloved brothers, not has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones that drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? Now James moves on to speak about the big picture of why this preference is so undesirable. Here's what it ultimately does. It damages the entire fellowship. What they, and I think we need to understand is God's ways are really not like our ways, are they? His thoughts are not like our thoughts. He looks at people differently than we do. When God sent the Son of the world, He didn't do it through the elite of the world. You remember how Jesus came into the world? He came through a, a, a teenage girl who was a nobody in a place that was not all the most fancy place in the world, was it? To bring about the salvation that we need. What's fascinating about preferential actions is, is it not only degrades the poor man, Ultimately, it degrades 
the rich man because he misses out on the greater information of life. What God has chosen those in rich of faith to be is those who have very little to the world often. Again, God's economy is not like ours. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. He works in different ways than we do. And we look at people with our eyes, but God looks at them with his eyes. Oh, that we would be people that learn to view the world with the eyes of God. And we don't judge folks based on the externals. The world sees those with wealth and power. Those are the important folks. The poor, push them over the side. We don't need them. But when we let that kind of division continue in the body of Christ, and I think that's what James is dealing with, they're having this issue. They're being struggling with this culture that's kind of gone crazy, and they're having lots of issues in life because of their faith in Jesus, and they're going, how are we going to do this? And then they come together, and they begin to treat each other differently. It makes it even worse. It's like a mess. And everyone gets degraded. Fourth, it then disconnects us. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, another issue in showing preference is it tends to disconnect us, to put up walls. And his call is this. And I, and I really had to kind of do some study and research and some thought. And I'm going, he's talking about the royal law. Is he, he's not talking about Roman law. What's he talking to? What, what law is he talking about? Is he talking about the Levitical law? He's saying, okay, here's the way we're going to fix this. We're going to just rigidly follow the rules of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus came to what? Fulfill the Old Testament. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think that's the intent. I believe the intent, and remember, we're talking to a group of people who are primarily Jewish in orientation, okay? So he uses a reference here that they would get. It'd be like us using a reference as Americans that of... Uh, Something from the the, the, the the Pledge of Allegiance. So we would grasp the meaning of that because what? We've said it how many times? I don't know, a thousand times. It makes sense to them. I think what he's doing here is he quotes, quote, I'm having trouble with words today, quotes uh, the Shema. You remember the what? When you, if you ever go to a Jewish service, they, they quote the Shema. You should love the Lord your God, your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And goes on from there. And he's using that to connect them. And James is teaching them that when a person really loves God, who else are you going to love? Your neighbor. When we show preference, when we defer to some and denigrate others, we ultimately do this. We disconnect from each other. And we create a division in the body of Christ. Remember, James is not writing to the, to the world. He's writing to the believers. We, we create a division in the body of Christ that God never intended us to have. Oh, they're up here and we're down here. They're over there. We're on the, they're on the outside. We're on the inside. That's not the, the idea of Christian faith. Showing preference is not a healthy approach to living in a vile time. And it's not a pathway to victorious living either. Remember, the people of James' day were the minority of the culture. We talked about last week how the, some studies are showing that by 2050, Christians are going to be the minority in our culture. I would dare say it's going to happen sooner than that. Where are we at? And being disconnected from each other leaves us in a place where we're on that proverbial island all alone with no support. You say, well, I don't like them. You know what? Jesus loves them. Well, I don't want to be around them. 
Maybe they need you to rub off the sharp edges. See, we sometimes think we don't need anybody. We do. Fifth, showing preference then damages purity. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as trained. Now, wait a second. Stop just a second. Verse 9. Look at that again with me. Did you see it there? But if you show partiality, you're doing what? Can I sugarcoat it for you? He, we're committing sin. I mean, there's no way around that. We, we sometimes think, oh, well, well, yeah, adultery, that's a sin. Yeah, murder, yeah, that's a sin. Partiality, that's not a sin. That's just a preference. James would disagree. He understood the big idea that any, any, any sin causes impurity in the life of a believer. And when we tolerate this attitude that sometimes creeps into church bodies, it damages the whole body. Well, let's just go to the next step then. When we hold an animosity against a brother or sister in Christ who goes to the same congregation that we do. I don't want to be around them. I don't like him. I don't like her. I think they're this. I think they're that. Guess what? We are showing partiality and we're damaging the body of Christ right here. I know I'm on application real quick here, but hang on. We need to get this. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become what? Guilty of it all. He said don't commit adultery, also said don't commit murder. And if you don't commit adultery but you murder, you become a transgressor of the law. When we allow this stuff, when we tolerate sin of any degree, you're probably saying, but Patrick, all of us sin. Oh, yeah. But can I tell you something? As a child of God, you have been set free from what? Sin. As a child of God, you're no longer supposed to be patterned in sin. You're not supposed to be living in sin. You're not supposed to be driving your life through sin. Does it happen? Yes. Should it be a pattern of our life? No. You go, well, who can hold that standard up? None of us. But we should be following the Lord and letting Him change us day by day by day to get us where we need to be, not where we want ourselves to be. We live in a culture, though, of what? Ultra-personal responsibility of freedom. We say, it's all about me, this is my life, and this is James saw the blessed, listen, the blessed interconnectedness of being in the body of Christ. I won't sing Barney this morning, but I need you. You need me. We're a what? We're not a very happy family sometimes, are we? But we need each other. And we show partiality, we're messing it up. As they're facing this harsh, harsh season of life, they would not survive if they went alone, guys. And I've got to tell you something. The next decade of the church, not First Baptist exclusively, the church in America... If we don't figure out how to walk together and love each other and get past the stuff that doesn't really matter, we're really going to struggle. Well, they don't agree with me on my finest point of theology. So, what? We must never waver on the essentials, folks. But so much of what we get... Wamper jawed with each other. Is that theological? I think it is. It's stuff that in the day and judge doesn't matter. James cautions us about allowing sin to remain. And when we tolerate sin, it dilutes the power of God. 
Sixth, showing preference then develops into mercilessness. I struggle with how to write this point because it's really more positive than the way I've written that. So he says this. So if all of this is going on, here's what you do. Here's his solution. You ready? Speak. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As we show preference, here's what happens. We find ourselves living in a merciless, I would even say ruthless way of living. We look at each other as obstacles. Oh, they're supposed to be over here. They're supposed to be over there. This is a, and we just mess it up. To live in such a way that we recognize having judgment, but we forego mercy, we develop a life of mercilessness. Let me, I'm jumping into application again, but hang on. Here's the deal. Have you not noticed this is our culture? Our culture is mercilessness on steroids. I'll, I'll, I'll drive the point in a minute, but I want you to catch that because this is where we are. This is what we're struggling with. This is the life we have. And to live in that way recognizes that we are not the people that God wants us to be. And as people face serious hardship, hardship and trial from all sides, they needed what to get through? Judgment. No. We need what? Mercy. Let me remind you, before you knew Jesus, you needed what? Mercy. And in the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, like we observed this morning, what did you receive? Mercy. But we turn around and tear each other up. Oh, church. Three things. Loving others, it does this. It reveals godly love. I am firmly convinced that how we, how we love, how we love, reveals the intensity of our godly love. How we do it. As people living in vile times ourselves, we ultimately have a choice to make. Will we sink to the level of our culture or will we rise above to the, to the nature of God in us and let it flow through us and change us to be the people he wants us to be? Obviously, this begins with an internal choice. Let me tell you what, friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, you've got to start there. You say, well, I joined the church. So what? Joining a church doesn't do anything but make you a church member. I promise you, Jesus and God are never going to check the church membership roles in heaven. They're going to be checking the role that's going to be called up yonder, the one that's written in the Lamb's book of life. Y'all with me? And so you don't need to be a member. You need to know Jesus. There's a place for church membership. Don't misunderstand. But the most important thing is knowing him. And when you know him, then there's going to be proof that flows out of your life. And it's not what we think Entirely, and it's not even what we believe entirely, but it's how the thoughts and beliefs we hold impact what we do. That's James's big point. I'm reminded of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to tell the story because y'all know the story. You know the good story after the story, right? You know what a Samaritan was? Filthy, half breed, nobody loved him. They might as well go eat dirt. Y'all with me? You remember the story, don't you? Guys robbed on the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And you remember who came along first? A priest. The priest said, oh, bless you, bless you, bless you. And he kept going. And then Levitical spiritual leader shows up and he goes, oh, if I can't go over there, I'll get unclean. You remember who came by next, don't you? 
filthy Samaritan. And you're going, why is he calling him filthy? Because that's how the Jews viewed them. They were just filthy folks that weren't fit for the culture. They would come into the congregation and say, y'all sit over there. We have the Samaritan section up in the balcony. That was unintentional. I apologize. But you remember who went out of his way to help, don't you? The Samaritan. He stopped. He cared for his wounds. He took him to a lodging. He said, I'll pay the bill. And if there's more to be paid later, it's on me. At the end of the parable, we find the interaction that we see in Luke 10. It says, which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, that's easy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. I would say to you, church, you do, you go and do likewise. Show mercy. So who's your neighbor? I have one neighbor at my, where I live. I only have one neighbor. And I have a part-time neighbor. No, I got neighbors everywhere, right? We have people all around us that we can show the love of Jesus. You know, I was thinking about these meals we're doing on, on Fridays and, and Saturdays for the kids at the school. You know what? They don't need us to prepare a meal for them. You don't, you don't realize that. You know, some of the kids may not have a lot of food stability in their home. I understand that. But these kids will get something to eat one way or the other. So why are we doing it? Why are we getting up at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning to go cook eggs? Ah, oh, crazy. Why are we have members taking the leftovers and going around the community trying to give them away and almost get arrested? I mean, here's the thing. You know, we, we do it. Why? To show God's love. And to say, we just want to bless you from First Baptist. Second, we need each other. We need each other, don't we? Many of us think we don't need them. They're not part of my social group. They're not part of the group I like to hang out. They're not part of my generation. They're not Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, Boomer, Boomerang, whatever. They're not me. I don't want to be around them. Mm -mm. Let's be honest. Many of us think we really don't need other people and really don't want them. They kind of get in our way. They slow down on the freeway in front of us. If they would just disappear, life would be so much easier. I know y'all had those thoughts. I've had those thoughts. Does she not see me coming? Does she not know I'm the most important person on planet Earth? I'm going down the freeway at 75. Can she not get in my way at 74? Come on. Jesus well, the 18 wheelers at 70, isn't it? But anyway. James was speaking to a people in a very vile time. They needed to see the importance of having others in their life. They needed to hold each other accountable. They needed to encourage each other. They needed to speak the truth and love at all times. See, we live in a day when it seems like every person goes and does what's right in their own eyes, don't they? Who was, I think it was Oprah Winfrey. Don't let, quote me on this. She created a phrase about 20 years ago called living your own truth. I've got to do more research on that. So if that's not the right quote, I apologize. And that has infiltrated our culture. And now we all create our own truth. My truth says this. The LGBT group has taken that and they're creating their own reality. This group has taken it and creating their own reality. This is my truth. This is my... There's just one truth. And it's either the truth or it's not, right? 
There's the truth and there's a lie. The problem with this thinking is it also is very lonely. It can be very deceptive. It's very separating. It causes us to go, well, he's, he's not my political party, so we can't be friends anymore. He doesn't agree with me on every fine point of politics, so we can't walk together. He doesn't agree with me on every point of theology. He's a little weak in this area from my perspective, and he'd think I was a little weak in another area from his, and yet we can't walk together. We need each other. We as a church need each other. We as people need each other. Over in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer warns the readers about the importance of having others along for the ride called life. He says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Folks, we need each other. We've got to consciously say, I am going to love through their faults, through their failings, and they're going to love me through my faults and my failings and my shortcomings, and we're going to walk together and love each other and show God's love. That's James's challenge to the first century church. That's my challenge to us, that we would do the same thing. To be positive influences in life and have a trajectory in life that makes it life worth living. And then last point I want you to grasp, and you can close your Bible and just listen. Mercy is superior to judgment. When things are off the rails in times like James's day, it's really easy. It's always easy, but it's really easy to pass judgment. It's easy to look through the eyes filled with a plank to see the speck in the other person's eye, isn't it? It's easy to see the other person's faults while at the same time looking past our own. And we live in a day when people are quick to judge and condemn without ever knowing what we're talking about. If you've never watched an online social media fight, you have missed something that you don't ever want to see again. And usually they're picking over little things. I can give you example after example. To rip into somebody for their faults is not the Jesus way. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't come into your life and your faults and say, See that? See that? You're a mess. Not with that attitude, does he? He comes in gently and lovingly and says, Hey, we need to correct this. Let's get this right. But he doesn't come bringing judgment for his children. I love that passage. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Different translations translate this a little bit differently. Seven times seven, seven, times seven or 77 times. There's room in the Greek for both. But the point, he's not saying make a list. Well, when Don Howard, I forgive him 490 times. I'm done. Who's got time to make that kind of list in their life, really? And that's the point. The point is what? Let mercy reign. You want to ruin a marriage? Don't forgive. You want to ruin a friendship? 
Don't forgive. You want to run a church? Don't forgive. Instead, what he's saying is we forgive, we forgive, we forgive, we forgive, we forgive, we forgive. Oh, and then we forgive some more. And in doing that, we become more like Jesus than we could ever imagine. To forgive as he's forgiven. To love as he loves. Oh, dear friend, do you know Jesus? See, without Jesus, you can't really forgive others. You're going to hold the grudge. You're going to be angry. You're going to hold animosity in your heart. You're going to let that stuff get down deep in your soul. It's going to ruin you. But if you let Jesus take over, forgiveness will start to flow. And you'll love others. Even if you're on an island with everybody else who knows Jesus and the world is coming after us, you'll love. Can we be that church? Can we be those people? Can we live that life? Not by ourselves, but with his help we can. Father, we pray right now for your freedom in our lives to help us to learn to forgive. Lord, help me learn to forgive. Help all of us learn to forgive. God, we want to be people who love you. And Father, that begins with a relationship first. So Father, we pray for those who maybe don't know you personally or maybe have never made that declaration publicly that, God, they would do that even today. For many of us, it's not that decision. It's the decision that says, I want Jesus' love in my heart. I'm not going to hold preference. I'm not going to show favoritism. I'm going to love people as people because you love them that way. We want you to have your way in our hearts and our lives, Father. We want you to have your way in this church. We want you to be lifted up and glorified in Jesus' name.